what are you thinking as a parent, right? It's not just women and girls anymore, too. Hey, look, I was dumb when I was in college and I got arrested for drinking and I shouldn't have. And the scars that come from it when they have been abused. And now, the Safety Zone. Mike, welcome to another episode of the Safety Zone. We're looking forward to our conversation today, although it is it's a difficult one because I think the heart of any parent, and really any person, should be for the safety of our children and and what's best for our children. The heart of a parent, of course, we want our children to succeed. We want them to be safe and, and protected. And yet in our society, we're seeing more and more sex trafficking with children. Of course, for many years, the abduction of children, the sexual exploitation of children, which is not new. It's been progressing for quite some time. But what we do see is that age is becoming younger and younger, the sexualization of children, it's just, it's degenerating down from what it has been into the point where children really are stripped of their innocence of being a child. So in recent developments, of course, we've seen the film Cuties that, you know, the producer and director adamantly state that the point of the film is is to bring to light the sexual exploitation of children and sex trafficking. But sadly enough, they're exploiting these little girls in the midst of the film in trying to bring about their point. And sadly, that's kind of where we are as a society, isn't it? We're seeing more and more exploitation, not just in the media, but just even in our laws and even in our whole mind frame of how we see kids and really not honoring them as children. Yeah, good morning. Absolutely, Melinda. And, you know, it, it kind of brings me back 15 plus years ago when primarily what I was doing was a lot of training on violence against women and children. I traveled extensively and there was a piece of research that had come out probably 17, 18 years ago. And it was really looking at the media and the sexual exploitation of women and girls. And so it was a, a very kind of focused review of media. And I can remember, uh, and I, my grandfather, my grandmother are bouncing in my head right now as I think back to this research, because they talked about like my parents or my grandparents' generation, and then looking at our generation. Now, keep in mind, Melinda, this was 16 or 17 years ago. Mm -hmm. How far have we come in 16 yeah. years? That's where we're going with this podcast. But 16 years ago, they were saying that my children would be exposed to more violence and sexual images through media mm -hmm. in a year than my parents had been exposed to it in their lifetime. Mm. And so you're telling me this doesn't mm. have an impact? It certainly has an impact, but we, we try to quiet those voices mm -hmm. when this comes out. This is not a political statement, because if you think back when the Clinton-Gore years, what did Al Gore, I mean, they were taken on the media, right? And these images. And violence. And so this is not a political statement we're making here. This should be a concern for every person mm. in the United States, kind of what we're seeing and where we are today even versus where we are or where we were 
15 years ago when a lot of this research was just starting to unfold. We've seen it on the school side. You've got experts like uh, David Grossman, former Lieutenant Colonel Special Forces, and he has spent probably 20 or 25 years focused on violence and seeing violence over and over and over and over again and the desensitization and how that impacts decision-making. And he really takes on the video game industry. And it's a powerful lobby. And he's had not a lot of success if you look at the video games your children play these days. But he even would talk about some of these shooting incidents with children, not necessarily Mm school-based, but just incidents involving... There was one he talked about in Alabama years and years ago where this young teenager was arrested, but then was able to disarm and shoot the police officer in the police station. And it was a headshot. And Grossman talks about when you play these video games, you get more points for shooting somebody in the head. I've read through a lot of his books and materials, and he compares it to how they train soldiers. Mm -hmm. And he said, up until Vietnam, the way we trained soldiers was very kind of impersonal. We shot static targets that look like pinballs, Mm cue targets. Nothing was realistic. He said, going into Vietnam, we made training much more real. We humanized killing and how you kill the enemy. And our kill rates went up significantly. And so he kind of compares that to like the video games that we're seeing today. The more real and visual we make that... Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I said, you know, I grew up on Atari. So you talk about dating yourself right now. That was the first video game with two paddles and a white ball. Pong. We thought we, yeah. We thought we had hit pay dirt with that. And then I compare it to what we see today and, and how real mm-hmm. these images are. Well, just think about it in terms of the sexualization of our children. It really takes us back to John JonBenet Ramsey. I think that's yeah. one of the first times we really, really looked at an image and went, what are you thinking as a parent, right? Like Making her look like like an adult. Exactly. And at that time, I think people were just slack-jawed over that. But I've got girls that are still in school, and I look at parents and I'm thinking, why do you buy them clothes or sweatpants or shorts that have writing on the rear of those shorts. I mean, you're trying to get people to focus and look. It's just, you know, look at what you're letting them wear to school. And I I know I'm starting to sound like my dad here, but just where we've gone, you know, from 15 years ago to where we're at today, and even over the last 12 months. We're not letting... Wow. Yeah, we're not letting children be children. And it's sad because your childhood goes by so fast. You have your whole life to be an adult. And I would say this, I have a 16-year-old daughter, and and we've battled on clothing, we've battled on things. But even in adolescence, when an adolescence started, I said, you have your whole life to be an adult. You only have this small frame to enjoy being a kid. And and it's sad because everything targeted at these kids is, is stripping them of that childhood. I, I, it's, it's stripping them of the innocence. But when we see that, and it goes beyond sexual exploitation, just in the sense of just, again, making them, even teachers sometimes in schools, you know, making them like they're, they're their own adult person when they're fifth, sixth grade and still a child. But we are seeing 
this encountering more and more with laws, aren't we? And how everything progresses. And as we've seen everything progress and the ages becoming younger and younger, you have some examples, and I know we've talked about it a couple of times, but what that leads into, including the consent law. Yeah, we talked about this a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago, but you look at kind of these movements, you know, out of California is what you're referring to. This law that was signed by the governor. A lot of people are focusing on a lot of different aspects of this law, but the thing that really grabbed me was the consent language in this statute. Mm -hmm. To say that a 14-year-old can give consent to a 24-year-old to have a relationship, that should be what is scaring us to death. Mm -hmm. And so public policy There's a lot of well-intentioned public policy that can also put our children at harm. I mean, I live in a state with a very conservative legislature, but there's been a series over the last five or six years of expungement bills. Expungement in and of itself is a viable statute. But what happens is when you pass legislation, you know, what do they say? There's always unintended circumstances. Like we can't always think through every aspect of a piece of legislation we're going to pass. And so what has happened is the intent of expungement is to say people make mistakes. People should have second choices or opportunities, right? Clearly, there's some crimes you commit where we're not going to give you a a second opportunity to hurt a child again. Mm -hmm. You're a sexual predator, sexual abuse, child abuse. But there is a lot of criminal acts that people commit, DUI, public intoxication. And so the intent of most expungement statutes focus on nonviolent misdemeanor level offenses to say, hey, look, I was dumb when I was in college and I got arrested for drinking and I shouldn't have. That shouldn't follow you the rest of your life. And the way these statutes are typically constructed is to say you committed a crime and there was a period of time that proved that you learned your lesson, two years, three years, five years. And after that period of time, you can petition the court to get it expunged. That's like taking a whiteboard and erasing it. It's as if it never happened. So Mm -hmm. as an owner of a background screening company, an expunged record is no longer reportable. I cannot tell you about it. And matter of fact, in some states, it can be, uh, there can be legal ramifications for an organization that a that uses this information if they know that that information had been expunged. Well, what we found here in Indiana, it popped up over the last couple of years, was we came across two convicted sex offenders that had had their records expunged. Now, technically, we should never see that information. It should only be available to law enforcement. It's no longer a public record. What happened is they had run background checks through our system before, and so they had been flagged in our system because of a previous reporting. And then in the interim, they had gotten these records expunged. And so one of them had applied at two schools and three churches in one community and was getting ready to go on a overseas mission trip. Obviously, this was pre-COVID with teenagers (gasps) from the church. Frightening. And both of these were convictions for child solicitation or child, uh, a relationship with a child. And both of them were felony convictions. But judges 
had expunged their records. And so what happened is the legislature uh, came back and closed that loophole Mm. and had to enact amendments to that to say, no, if you have been convicted of child sexual solicitation or any crime and uh, felony crime involving a child and violence related to a child or sexualization, it's no longer. So they had, you know, what was happening is there was a lot of discretion at the judicial level. And so that was two cases we knew about. Well, Who yeah. knows how many cases because we never saw the record because it had been expunged. So even how the legislation well-intended for certain classifications of offenders is now being applied to the one group that continuously harms our children. And how frightening that they're able to be a part of a church in, in I mean, a part of the church in terms of a ministry that deals with young people. I, it makes you wonder, are there other states? Is this going on in other areas? You know, having an expunge and putting so many people at risk. I mean, that's a real frightening thought. It's terribly frightening. And I, and I think a lot of times I, I fall a lot of times on the behavioral side mm-hmm. and, and I get it. A lot of criminal records and a lot of probably our competitors that run background screening firms maybe don't have kind of the same level of experience. I mean, I come out of a violent crime background as a detective. And so I've always worked with, been intrigued by, studied, learned more on the behavioral side. I'm more interested in a lot of times why or what led you or the cause factors in, in these violent offenders. Mm-hmm. And and how does that kind of tie together? Well, you look at the behavioral side of this one example where he had applied to, what, two or three churches, a couple different schools all in one community. Think about the behavioral aspect of this. What he's saying is, I'm going to do everything I can, everything within my power to get access to children because I have a singular focus on children. And I've read and I've studied and talked to other investigators and, and working in violent crimes. When you start to understand these serial or violent offenders are the ones that harm our children. They dehumanize them. That's the first step in being able to victimize them. A lot of times it's got to be the first step where they kind of step back and remove themselves. And this becomes an object. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the same thing I started the podcast with when they're talking 15 or 16 years ago about this uh, sexualization in our advertising and media. It really makes it easy for me to dehumanize and now become objectify girls or women. You are an object. You are not a real person or a human being. It is much easier for me to harm you when I look at you as an object than I do as a human being. I was reading this morning. This may make you think I'm a little bit crazy, (laughs) but the book I was reading this morning, I do more happy reading at night because I don't want bad dreams. Yeah. But in the morning, in the morning, a lot of times I'm reading through kind of behavioral case studies. And the case study I was reading today, this guy was a phenomenon because he harmed the daughter of one of his best friends. I'm talking about he he raped and murdered this seven or eight-year-old girl. And what is so frightening about this particular case is he had known this family forever. They were best friends. And uh. 
he had known this girl since she was born. And a lot of times it's very difficult to create that space where you can dehumanize that person. He killed her by hitting her over the head with a rock. And so it's that dehumanization. And that's what a lot of what we're seeing in our culture right now is we're taking away the human aspect of these children and we're creating images of them. Cuties. I mean, I noticed the first thing in my feed this morning, you know, the state of Texas has indicted Netflix in Tyler County, Texas over this Netflix documentary on cuties. It's not just women and girls anymore, too. Boys are just as much in the mix. And I was thinking back to Paterno, the, 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 I have the right name, the coach, and just talk about grooming and the nonprofit and helping these boys. And I thought, again, something that shocked the world. And I think it shocks us, not only because of the behavior, but because it's a trusted person. And like you just said, with this this man, I mean, how horrible he was. There was some history there. He was a trusted friend of this whole, of this family. And I think that also kind of shows that we tend to, if we've known somebody for a long time, it's like, oh, you know, or, or in church, well, gosh, they've been here for 15 years. They're harmless. That's not always the case, is it? Not always the case. I mean, as you talked about the Penn State case, you Mm -hmm. know, Jerry Sandusky was Paterno's assistant coach that committed all these acts. A couple things stand out. It's the grooming, grooming and building trust. There's a lot that goes into grooming that also isolates, pushes children away from likely telling their parents about something's happened. I'll be honest with you. My daughter is 12. She lost her mother when she was three months old. So I've been kind of de facto mom and dad, right? which is awesome. There's a lot of times I'm cooking dinner and she's telling me things. I was like, boy, I sure wish you were telling your mom that and not me. This was an uncomfortable conversation. The other part of me goes, please keep talking to me. Don't ever get to a point where somebody can convince you that you can't tell me something because that's where this grooming, that's what happens with these behaviors. I isolate you. A lot of times they're very focused on our children who do not have structured home lives. Now, let's not be misled into thinking this cannot happen in very happy functioning Mm -hmm. families because it can. Mm -hmm. I know a case, pastor, his wife, youth minister, and the next thing you know, his young, I think she was probably middle school aged at the time, this youth minister was able to get access to the senior pastor's daughter, and she was then sending photos of herself topless to the youth pastor. You talk about how good was this Mm. youth pastor also knowing very good family. So it wasn't like a child who had nobody she could tell and what barriers he had to get her through. So the grooming aspect of this is is tremendously dangerous. But then you look at the Sandusky case that you brought up, the people closest to him, nobody was shocked. Nobody was shocked. Why? Because they had seen things. They had seen weird behaviors, but they had all put it into silos. Nobody talked about it. Nobody reported it. Nobody reached out. They didn't know what to do with it. And that's part of what we have to be doing is engaging with those that have have custody of our children, our schools, our volunteer programs, and our children to be able to let them know 
yes, tell us, you know, mm-hmm. this, this happens because isolating them is the first step in victimizing them. And in that case, too, it, it, I think it was the fact, like you said, the people around Sandusky, they hid it. Even if they didn't have proof, proof, they had inklings or they had heard things. And how can we educate people that you, that's not the road to go down? I mean, I know that was a, a particular case, but is that often the case where you have people, adults, or people that might have inklings, but they don't say anything, or, you know, they feel it's a precarious position, or they don't want to get involved. I mean, what is, what do we do with that? So much of the training that we see for volunteers or volunteer organizations, there's kind of two problems with it. One, it gets very statistically driven. That's fine. I need to understand some basic statistics. But if I'm volunteering in our church ministry, children's ministry, if you put me through a four-hour training, and it's full of all the different statistics, A, I need a a little bit to understand the scope of the problem, but that provides no solutions. And I said, everything we do should be solutions driven. We're getting ready to launch within the safe ministry solutions, training for volunteers. A couple aspects of that is one, they're very small snippets of training, seven to nine minutes, you know, five or six different aspects, but it's all about a foundational understanding And then here is solutions. If you see something, say something. If you see it, here's where you go. If you see this, because a lot of times we have this, what we call kind of intuition. And in the training, we call it informed intuition. This is not a new concept. How many times have you, as a person, been walking in some place or get on an elevator and Mm -hmm. your gut says, Mm, something's not right with this person. I read a book years ago, Gavin DeBecker wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. And one aspect of it really focuses on how we train our daughters in particular, who grow into adults, right? And we train them to really override their intuition. Yes. And think of our culture today. Oh, we got to be fair to everybody. You can't make those kind of statements. No, you have an intuition and an informed intuition because I understand things. When that intuition goes, hair on back and neck, standing straight up, walk away. If you feel something before you walk on an elevator, typically what happens is we override that and go up. I'm a good Samaritan. That's going to be rude if I don't go ahead and get on the elevator. No, my daughters step off the elevator. Don't get on. And Mm -hmm. so being able to train and understand that probably our greatest tool of safety is our intuition. But culturally, we spend a lot of time taking that away from our, our, our daughters and teaching them to override that intuition. Tuition or our volunteers, because they were trained that way when they were young. I see something and boy, that doesn't seem right. But boy, am I going to look like an idiot if I say something to somebody and then I'm going to be called out or shamed because of saying something. And that's so true. I mean, I've had that happen myself, right? Just get this bad feeling about someone. But your your first inclination after that is, oh, all right. Don't be so paranoid or just because they have this look or they have that, you know, you start and you do, you start critiquing that feeling instead of just removing yourself from the situation. You, you, it is kind of a battle because you're like, oh, I want to be nice or that's not fair to that person. That kind of thing goes on yep. often. And we work hard to move that into a behavioral feeling and discussion versus an appearance. Right. Because th- the greatest injustice we can do with teaching or training 
is to use words like the boogeyman, monster. Because if you have studied anything about violent offenders in this world, many of them do not fit into a category of spooky looking. There's some things, you know, I look at eyes, man. Eyes tell me a lot. A lot of interviews with a lot of violent offenders. Quick look at them, nothing frightening. Sometimes the eyes, I can learn a lot about them. But we got to be very careful Mm -hmm. in training our daughters or volunteers or anybody that has responsibility with our children. We've got to move them away from thinking about the way somebody looks because you're going to miss 90% of these Mm -hmm. predators because they don't look scary. Scary is not always an indicator of somebody who's going to harm our children. You know, some of the best fit right in and move amongst us all the time. Because they can gain that trust if someone is, I mean, a child's going to be more inclined towards somebody that's friendly and doesn't have any of those, like you said, the boogeyman, you know, kind of stuff, even in their their look or their way they behave. The whole point is getting them to, to trust course, an exception would be Charles Manson. I, <laughs> I always remember seeing that guy's eyes and I think, yeah. oh my gosh. Of course, then again, he was also directing everybody to do stuff. And, mm-hmm. But but it is such an important thing. And we it's so sad to see how children are objectified. I mean, it, it was it was always women and, and it's just to see the younger, the age just becoming younger and younger and and seeing that stripped from them, that childhood innocence and the scars that come from it when they have been abused, exploited, and how damaging that is to their to their adulthood. Mike, what do you in closing, I mean what so I'm gonna close on a, a being a downer, but what are some just things that we can do or that we can at least even within our own homes to protect kids to be a part of the answer create conversations i I think people might be shocked some of the conversations that happen at my dinner table you know my wife was in law enforcement now i'm not talking about we're having gory details we're talking about prior cases and this guy was shot 72 times but we're talking to our children because we want to keep communication open Mm -hmm. as they move into their teenage years and if you've not been there yet boy welcome when it happens yes because that's not their inclination is that is not their inclination you know. Exactly. And and so keeping that communication open, I had a good friend and he we've talked about him before. Jim worked in child sex abuse for 25 years in the New England area. And he talked about when he first got trained in child sex abuse, he was on fire. He had never seen anything like this and he was going to save the world. And actually, he did that for 25 years. He never lost that passion. Wow. But when he came back into his community, the first thing he did is he went and spoke at every group that would let him speak. The Kiwanis, the Rotary, every kind of civic organization. He said, what happened? And it took us a while to figure this out. Our reporting rates for child abuse and child sex abuse went up astronomically. And he said, we later figured out that what was happening as I went out and spoke to all these groups, they would go home and cooking dinner and they're telling their spouse, wow, you should have heard this guy today. He was talking about blah, 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 blah. The children were listening to this. And then all of a sudden the children said, wow, 
what grandpa's doing, what Uncle Harry's doing, what the neighbor's doing is wrong. And they started telling their parents. And so being able to create that environment, if you are a volunteer, if you work with children, access to training and understanding, grooming and, and informed intuition. And we offer those kind of training and services. And a lot of times we're doing webinars. I mean, these are free. There is no cost. And so just being able to understand. And so you better equipped than to recognize behaviors when you see them Mm -hmm. and then report them. And, you know, most of our schools have moved this direction. I'm not sure in the ministry space if it's quite as sophisticated yet with these anonymous reporting tools, very inexpensive, and and they can even be created internally. We have a couple partners in this space, and the ability to report for somebody who still may have a hurdle to say, I still can't get over that hurdle because I'm afraid if I'm wrong, what the repercussions would be. These anonymous reporting tools, I can text this and it's not going to be tracked back to me, but I've just notified somebody and now I've been put on notice as an organization. I have to look into this. We've seen it thwart school shootings and Mm -hmm. it has a big impact today on suicide and got a lot of other use cases, but it's communicate, talk with your children. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you again for a really thoughtful but needed conversation in our world today. And and we know it's not the end of the discussion. I'm sure there will be other things related to this that we will have to address as well. But thank you so much. Have a great day. This podcast is sponsored by Safe Ministry Solutions, which offers a 360 security solution that keeps your church, your congregation, and your ministry safe.